Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Content Confessions coming at you on a Tuesday, September 7th, 2021. As always, it is Hirsch, a.k.a. Stone Samurai, joined by my brother Stu, a.k.a. Steve. Steve, how's it going? Hey, not too bad. Hirsch, how's it going with you? You know, not too bad, not too bad on this end over here. Um, Today, uh, we're going to start off with uh, wanting to take a moment and and pay respects to to a legend and film icon, um, Michael K. Williams, um, an actor who um, I know Steve uh, is is one of the main reasons I had come across him uh, from watching The Wire, and uh, there was a lot of a lot of things he had partaken in. One thing I found out that he was actually a dance choreographer. And had, was in the music video for the uh, for the song "100% Pure Love," something I didn't know. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I found that out, and I thought that was uh, a nice, beautiful touch. And in uh, an addition, to find out about uh, a beautiful soul, and I know I myself, as as well as Steve, wanted to take a moment. So uh, I'll pass it over to him to so he can say what he wanted to. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, he was a fantastic actor. I enjoyed stuff. Like her said, obviously, Omar on the Wire is probably one of the most iconic, interesting characters that's ever been on television before. Um, thought he was great as Chalky White on Boardwalk Empire. And I did enjoy his role on Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country, even though that wasn't really a show I ended up sticking with too too much along the way. Had a really strong opening and kind of trailed off. Um, but yeah, I know other people talked about he had a really fun appearance on Community. I don't know if it was recurring or if it was just a one-time thing. I didn't really watch Community, but I heard he was good on there as like a biology or chemistry teacher or something like that. I don't know if you remember if you ever watched Community, Hirsch. Yeah, I I watched that a few times. I don't remember him being on there, but I want to go back. There's um there's also a dramedy that he had done. Um with a lot of uh, comedians that were like on SNL and stuff like that. And it looked like it was really good. I have the name of it. I'll have to, uh, I have to look for it later, but I can't remember it at the moment. Yeah. But I, I spent a lot of yesterday afternoon scrolling through Twitter and people were sharing uh, whether it was actors who had worked with them or just people who enjoyed his work, you know, sharing different scenes that they had enjoyed. And a couple of them were from the wire and, they also just somebody also shared a still image that was him holding uh, holding his boyfriend on the show of The Wire, who ends up getting tortured and killed. And that line that he that delivery that he has, you know, where, where that that boy was beautiful, it has always stuck with me. I thought that was a uh, that was when you knew there was going to be a lot more depth to that character than what they were presenting. Well, that was the beautiful thing about. Um his ability to act is that he was able to give life to not just characters, but situations that you uh, normally would find yourself either not being interested in or, or finding yourself uh, morally opposite um, uh, or accustomed to. And anytime you're able to have somebody who can uh, take the concept of basically not just being, you know, the local neighborhood Robin Hood, but also uh, being gay 
while while doing such was uh, was something that was definitely ahead of its time, especially on screen for when it came out. And uh, the other thing I wanted to take quick mention of, and it was something I had seen online, is um, he had done a lot of work um, on the ground and was a was a very big voice for a lot of people who never um, had an opportunity to have a voice. Uh, so again, just wanted to take a few moments and uh, pay some respects to somebody who um, I think I can say on, on behalf of both of, both of us, uh, touched us not only from an, an actor standpoint, but from a uh, personal standpoint as well. Yeah, and really quickly, just to, to back that up about the personal standpoint, uh, one of the interesting things that I saw get shared on Twitter was a photo of... Um, Anthony Bourdain, you remember the guy who unfortunately killed himself a couple years back, had a great show on like CNN and Food Network and Travel Channel and that kind of stuff. Yeah, love Bourdain. Yeah, Bourdain was the best. All right. Well, uh, one of his last episodes on, I believe, the Travel Network was an episode with Michael K. Williams where they were going around Brooklyn and trying out food and stuff like that. And randomly, they decided to go to a restaurant and they ran into the guy who played Marlowe on the mm. wire who just happened to be there and so they have a photo of marlo i can't remember the actor's name unfortunately uh michael k williams and then anthony bourdain and the unfortunate thing is that not only are anthony bourdain and now michael k williams gone but that restaurant i guess went out of business because it was part of like a mortgage fraud scheme oh wow and so you have this photo where like literally the only thing that's even around anymore is marlo Dude, he wins in the show, and he went. No, I, I shouldn't even make that joke. No, but like that's that's <laughs> kind of the the ironic thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Fuck, man. No, it's um, it's very bittersweet. Now I'm thinking about Anthony Bourdain. Fuck, man. Well, no, that's that's why I, I brought that up because Anthony Bourdain was one of those things that hit me pretty hard too at the time, mm-hmm. you know, and and still does when I think about it. And there's a documentary about him that's going to be coming to HBO. Um, I believe in October, if not this month or something like that. But I'm really interested in watching that too. Yeah, it's gonna, you know, uh, it's gonna be something that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, yeah, because it released in theaters a couple months back, and I read a lot of reviews, and I heard, you know, somewhat negative things about some of the stuff they did. But I want to watch it for myself. And Anthony Bourdain was one of those people who was interesting in his own right too. Yeah. See, I always stay away from reviews like that before I see a movie because what ends up happening is other people's judgments end up clouding my own. I want to be able yeah. to go in with my own and then make it afterwards. See, luckily I saw like three or four different perspectives. And so I was kind of able to get like a decent mixture. Um, yeah. The reason I read one of the reviews is because it's written by a guy whose stuff I pretty much read like religiously. One of the guys who writes for Defector, Drew uh, McGarry. I okay. pretty much always read his stuff and he wrote a review about it and cause he had written about Bourdain when he died for, um, for vanity fair. And he was able to interview a lot of like friends and family after like a year after Bourdain had died, I think, or shortly after. And so I was interested to hear what he had to say about it because, uh, Bourdain's death had hit him pretty hard too. Yeah. Well, actually I'm to quickly, uh, it's a little bit of a transition, but still somewhat on topic. I'd seen a video recently. Um, the guys from Whitest Kids You Know had gotten together, and there was a video that was titled uh, How Trevor Moore Had Passed Away. And um, 
the guys from Whitest Kids You Know, they were, I think it was, it might have been a Twitch stream, but they were on there and they were talking about it. And uh, I just wanted to reconfirm what they had confirmed on their stream, which is Trevor Moore had died from trying to suck his own penis. He had huh. gotten a rib removed from a surgery in Mexico and it was suck off Saturday and he succumbed to himself. He came and he went and now he's gone. So yeah, it's too bad that we had to do another remembrance little segment after doing that one about Trevor Moore too, but I'm um, at least he went out doing what he loved. Yeah. You know, you, you want to go out sleeping or getting oral pleasure. And I guess he, he went out, Hey, he I mean, got to give and receive. What's better than yeah. that? Yeah. What's 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 more better? No, and I and and I I just wanted to bring that up because I think it was really sweet seeing those guys get together and do that. So, um, yeah, Michael K. Williams, Anthony Bourdain, Trevor Moore, obviously countless others, but uh, yeah, just wanted to take that moment. Um, but now we're going to be talking about the real subject that we're here for today, which is part of oh. our landing. Oh. Yeah, really quickly, though, you want to give a little update on what we're doing next week so people have a chance to watch. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Got a little bit too ahead of myself. For those of you listening, if you want to do something a little fun uh, next week for our free form episode or freestyle episode, however you want to call it. We're going to be talking about the Bob Ross documentary that has recently come out on Netflix. Now, we would love nothing further than for those listening to watch it um, and and comment on Twitter or email or even send us an audio clip on Anchor. If you're interested in that, there's multiple ways to get hold of me. But you can send us audio clips and uh, my brother and I will be able to listen to them and answer your questions that you send on audio. Um, or any sort of comments that you have, we can uh, reiterate them on the podcast. Absolutely. But yes, now I think I think I can jump the gun, right? I think now you're good. I didn't mean to now we're good. Wanted to make sure that we let people, you know, reminder. Now we're gravy. See, we're we're up to speed now. Sometimes I get a little bit too ahead of myself. I get a little little happy. Um, so the, the episode today that we're talking about, it's pertaining to the Latin American series that we've been doing. Um, and a lot of people listening, I've, I know a couple, uh, people that I've talked to in discord and just in passing, whether it be on stream, a couple of people have kind of asked, you know, uh, why the Latin American series? Well, this episode, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Uh, and I think that overall, it's going to be uh, this episode in particular is going to be a great uh, spotlight into the next few episodes we'll be getting into, especially the time era, which is basically the transition from the Carter administration into everyone's favorite fucking daddy, Mr. Ronald Reagan. Grandpa. Well, he was the best, dude. If you ask, if you ask people, they loved him. Everybody loved them. Some Reagan. Oh. What's what's really weird is okay. I'm I'm a little bit older of a millennial than everybody else. You know, I was born in the early '80s, '83, and one of my earliest memories of uh, anybody being president was a really creepy uh, Genesis video 
the old Phil <laughs> Collins band. <laughs> yeah. And they had these videos where they would use puppets, almost like uh, like Jim Henson looking puppets, but like evil looking. Oh, God. And there was a video they had where the video was a nightmare that Reagan had where he ended up using the nuclear button, you know, like the big red button to start nuclear war. And like the Reagan, like Muppet looking puppet in that video scared the fuck out of me. <laughs> and I don't know if that had anything to do with my future outcome as far as ideology, but I didn't like Reagan even as like a fucking three year old. Yeah, no, it was, dude, it was just your younger self affirming something that you would further believe in as you grew older. Yeah, it's it definitely imprinted. <laughs> um, definitely but yeah, imprinted. today's subject is going to be Nicaragua. Now, I just wanted to quickly point out before we get into it, uh, for those of you curious, if you if you go ahead and type in, uh, just do yourself a favor and type in uh, Nicaraguan uh, flag or coat of arms. And you're going to see that this episode is really about the Illuminati. Hashtag stay woke. I, I, no, I'm just kidding. They're actually not Illuminati. But I just really thought it was weird that their coat of arms was the uh, was basically like the the triangle with the eye, like the the money symbol that we have on our on our banknotes. Oh, we'll see. Like that's the all-seeing eye, and that actually is uh, biblical. It comes from like uh, the idea that you know God is watching over. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, even even their motto, right, is uh, the same motto that we decided to put on our currency, which is "In God We Trust." Yeah. Oh yeah, like they are uh, a very Catholic country, and like especially after the Sandinistas, like there was a big reconciliation with the Catholic Church. Well, we'll get to a the, lot of that. Yeah, and and another thing too is uh, one of the things that's interesting about uh, Nicaragua is that not only. Do you see those political movements kind of have this revolving door? But uh, the overall concept of religion, um, whether it be uh, Christianity or Catholicism uh, in a whole. So that's going to be stuff we're going to get into. And before we directly get into that, basically, the reason today that we're going to be talking about Nicaragua is uh, the importance that its government played throughout its history, whether it was... uh, during the uh, early 20th century, all the way up and through the World War, uh, World Wars, all the way up until the 80s, 90s, and current day. Um, and this episode is going to be another prime example exactly on how the U.S.-backed operations in Latin America were continuing to expand and worsen uh, in terms of effects of, on civilians as well as leftist movements overall. And in this episode, we're going to be getting into specifics such as uh, guns, drugs, and, and U.S. military and CIA training that took place within these regions. There's going to be a lot of CCR playing in these helicopters that are flying by up until about the 70s or 80s where we start seeing the hair metal transition. But, you know, the time has come today, <laughs> which, you know, I just wanted to point out that I always find it really like, you know, uh, interesting that people that prop up like military industrial complex love, you know, groups like CCR. And I think we kind of talked about it with groups like rage against the machine. You see a lot of these, uh, right wing movements like, yeah, we love rage against the machine. We love their music, but they're getting all political now. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to put that up. Um, yeah. Especially yeah, all let's... the pickup truck boys who listen to CCR, right? <laughs> exactly. But, uh, but no, I just wanted to get that little precursor because it is important to kind of keep some of those concepts and some of those ideas, in mind as we go through. Um, yeah. And just really quickly to add as a little bit of an introduction here is um, 
for the Latin American series overall, especially for this episode here, you know, we can't really do a comprehensive look at everything. If we were to do an entire comprehensive series in Latin America, it would probably take like a year or two. Like if we really wanted to get in the nitty gritty, especially if we wanted to start with like early Latin American history, which we kind of skipped over at the beginning in a large way, whether we're talking about like ancient cultures or, you know, pre-colonization, that kind of stuff. But we're just, we're trying to pick and choose whether it's certain episodes or certain subjects, the things that we think best exemplify the different themes, subjects, or, or like our thesis basically for, for what we think has happened in Latin America and for, for how we think a good explanation for how Latin America turned out the way it is today. And you may ask why, why didn't we just start there then? Why didn't we just go with, you know, more current stuff? Why didn't we maybe start with this, the, the subject that we're talking about today or maybe an episode or two ago? Or maybe even, you know, the last episode that we're going to do on more of the current era. And I think the main reason is all this kind of stuff is, is connecting together. And hopefully you've noticed that in past episodes. But I think especially in this episode, we're going to see consequences from stretching back to the Roosevelt, you know, doctrine, the Monroe doctrine, the banana wars. Um, it's going to get into the link between American capitalism, uh, militarism, nationalism and imperialism all that kind of stuff is, is, is exemplified in each of these different stories that we've chosen we've also tried to show revolutionary ideas or, or conflicts that have gone on within countries and you're going to see that here in nicaragua as well where you have a big conflict between the conservatives and liberals a lot of civil wars going on early on that create a lot of instability that the united states is able to take advantage of or maybe get involved in because of that uh all those conflicts going on so it's not that, you know, this stuff, we didn't start here because I think a lot of the story needs to be told that led up to it. And hopefully a lot of that context will help you understand what's going to be happening as we're going in the next couple episodes. And sorry to take a minute there, Hirsch. I just wanted to, to talk about that a little bit. No, it's important to get into that because I think ultimately, right, like it, it's very hard to to look at a situation that's going on currently, or even if you just go back, you know, 15, 20, 30 years um, and be able to understand exactly why people react the way that they do. But when you look um, and I, and I think that the Latin American series was a great uh, precursor for this is if, if you look at uh, all these countries that we've talked about and just the countries in this region, it's it has a history of not only um, interference from from foreign countries, but there's also a lot of division and manipulation from those who control power and control wealth and control land. Um, and I think it's important to keep those kind of things in mind and also be reminded of them because it is it, it is easy to forget simple things like that when you get caught up in the. Uh, in the ideals of different political movements. And when you start seeing some of the statistics of, you know, the amount of people who were executed, whether it be corrupt leftist movements or uh, corrupt uh, movements that are on the right or different conservative movements. And it's very, uh, it's very important to the overall, like my brother had said, the thesis for the show, which I think, it's not just about establishing the connections um, politically and socioeconomically uh, between all these different countries. And, and uh, it's, it's more or less to also remind people that 
the human condition and the human experience is one that is shared. And instead of looking at it as a competition, it should just be continued to look at as a shared experience and one that we should possibly uh, try to learn from instead of trying to uh, win some sort of game. Yeah, and there, there's obviously a whole lot more to the story than anything that we've been able to talk about. That's why we've always encouraged people, especially to look at the stuff that we haven't talked about, even in addition to looking at the things that we've talked about more in detail. You know, because the details change, whether it's the names, the places, the context, but overall there is a pattern. That's what we've been trying to establish to this point, and I think it's going to come across really well in Nicaragua. Because like Chris said, you know, there's a lot of conflicts early on between liberals and conservatives that we talked about in previous episodes. You eventually have American occupation, part of the banana wars, all that kind of stuff that we talked about before as well. You had the Monroe, Monroe Doctrine thinking that, you know, we need to keep out any kind of European or foreign interference in our sphere. All that kind of stuff is going to repeat. And then you're going to also have the Cold War get involved where you have the, the Reagan administration getting involved in basically uh, a civil war that's happening in Nicaragua and making the situation much worse for everyone involved in the long run. And one of the things I want people to keep in mind, too, not only tying in with the previous Latin American episodes that we talked about, but if you go back to the Operation Gladio episode, specifically the couple episodes that we did on Italy, um, think about the Italian years of lead that we talked about and the overall idea of a, a strategy of tension. And you have this idea of feeding into conflict, uh, of keeping the, the political and social situation in such chaotic uh, flux that you're hoping to make sure that nothing on the left is able to take hold, or if it is able to take hold, that is not successful. And I think you see a big repeat of that later on, where you have, a, like we had talked about, you have a version of Gladio that gets imported to Latin America. And yeah, Hirsch, I think we're, we're good to start on the, the chunk, the body here of the episode in Nicaragua. Um, yeah. Were you, um, were you okay I, if we started with a little little bit of the early history or, or yeah i was gonna say i can start off with a little bit of the early history and if you feel like i miss a couple of things you can fill in the gaps um uh yeah go for so it with the early history um and and we had talked about a lot of this stuff in a previous episode which we uh basically had done like a pre-colonization type episode but just to quickly go over um there's i believe four different main groups that are going to be occupying uh, what is now modern-day Nicaragua at the time, different indigenous groups. Most of them were considered natives. However, some of these uh, different indigenous tribes had migrated from what's now considered northern uh, Colombia. Um, these groups were mainly a group uh, groups of hunter-gatherers, fishers, and they also performed in something that I got to learn about when I was in fifth grade called slash-and-burn agriculture. Um, yeah. For those listening who aren't really quite sure what slash and burn agriculture is or what it means, just a quick um, idiot's guide to it because, you know, I, I don't really, I'm, I'm not an expert. But basically what ends up happening, you have a group of people who are farming and you have a plot of land. You have some soil that maybe isn't nutrient rich. You cut down all of the vegetation, you dry it out, you burn it. And then ash becomes rich with nutrients, and then it makes the ground and the and the soil underneath fertile, and you can grow uh, really decent crops. Now, 
that seems like a glitch, like a hack, like, well, okay, well, why don't places just do it all the time? Well, one, it's hard to continuously grow stuff. And two, after several years, uh, soil degradation starts coming into effect. So you have to move to another plot of land. And as we all know, there's only so much land in the world. Um, now you fast forward a little bit after the 15th century, you start seeing um, more of Western Nicaragua getting inhabited by different uh, tribes, most of them being related to a lot of the tribes that, like I had mentioned before, we talked about in the pre-colonization episodes. Uh, these tribes were related to a lot of the Mesoamerican civilizations. So you can uh, pretty much, you know, the Aztec, the Maya, um, even in some cases, uh, Inca. Is there anything else that you wanted to quickly add into that, Stu? Or no, that was pretty much it. You you mentioned it, like you said, the Mesoamerican civilizations definitely had an influence. Where you have the cultures of the Aztec and Maya definitely having an influence, along with uh, more of a Caribbean coastal influence on the eastern part of of Nicaragua. Because if you look at the geography, much like Panama, it has an eastern uh, coastline on the Atlantic, western coastline on the Pacific which is, as we'll see later, comes into uh, interest because of the possibility of putting a canal zone into effect. And but, it's also uh, going to become important, too, for later on, we're going to talk about in the uh, mid-1800s, something pertaining to America. All the historian bus listen to it probably have an idea when I say mid-1800s having to do with uh, transportation to the United States, especially the Pacific. Um so we're going to go forward a little bit. You have 1502. You're going to see Mr. Everyone's favorite Italian adventurer, Christopher Columbus. He's back in the mix. He's back again. You can't stop him. He becomes the first European who is going to uh, reach what is now considered Nicaragua. And when he had arrived there, he had basically sailed the entire southeast, uh, the Isthmus of the Panama of, of Panama, rather, and when he arrived, he basically started exploring what's referred to as the Mosquito Coast, and that is basically on the Atlantic side, so the eastern side of Nicaragua. Well, that sounds like a lovely place, right? Let's visit the Mosquito Coast. Yeah, the Mosquito Coast. I, I tell you what, that's where I'm going to go for my uh, for my honeymoon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Malaria, Malaria City. Yeah, dude, that's freaking... All I need to do is just hit up Osmosis Jones and we're all fucking good. Um, yeah, so, but he didn't actually run into anybody. He didn't encounter any indigenous people at all. It, it's really not until 20 years later that you get the first encounters between the Spanish conquistadors and indigenous peoples in the area. You know, leave it to Columbus to not be able to discover not only the indigenous people that were living there, but he also didn't discover the gold. What an idiot. Nope. And, and you kind of see these uh, this conflict arising between conquistador groups and conquistador leaders who are fighting for for power for for control between each other. But in the meantime, that doesn't stop them from basically committing genocide and and cultural uh, cultural genocide. Well, yeah, and that's that's the thing that people need to remember too, especially uh, before any form of like modernized armies or modernized warfare. Um, a lot of these, a lot of these groups that they would send to explore out into the new world or to conquer, um, they were probably the worst of the worst, right? Like when you think 
uh, if there's any sort of comparison you can make from like Hollywood or from a show, think of people that they would send to the wall, right? Like rapers, murderers, thieves, the worst possible people in the world. That's who's going to be heading a lot of your armies that are going to be doing the adventurings and a lot of the claiming of land. Well, you have that and a, and a mixture of like second, third, and fourth born sons who aren't going to get land back in Spain who have to make a name for themselves and have to make a fortune in their own land in another place. So they're going to be looking for, for any kind of uh, advantage they can. Yeah. Well, because that's, that's the ultimate thing, right? Like if you're, if you're somebody who's either born into wealth or somebody who's just like on that middle class threshold, if you're able to go into the military and be successful, that is probably one of the few ventures you can actually prop yourself up for any sort of actual uh, financial gain. Is yeah, through there, the there's not much. Yeah, there's not much class movement, but one of the few ways you can gain power is through stuff like the military. Correct. Without a doubt. Um and as you had mentioned too, they throughout this time where you have the expansion of the uh, conquistadors moving throughout the area, uh, as my brother had mentioned, you start seeing a lot of infighting, and it eventually gives uh, way to the uh, what's referred to rather as the War of the Captains, uh, and that's something to keep in mind that. Um, the, this whole conquest that was happening, it wasn't just like it was one collective army, you know, an army of one with the mission. All of these guys that were out here were trying to make a name for themselves and more and more importantly, trying to get a claim to as much gold as possible for themselves without having to give it back to the Spanish monarchy. Yeah, and uh, keep in mind, too, that not only the, while these clashes are going on. They're trying to get as rich as they can during that war of the captains. Uh, there's a guy, Davila, who ends up the winner. He had had uh, another gentleman named Cordoba executed and publicly uh, publicly beheaded. They had founded the two big cities, Granada and Leon, on uh, a couple of different water systems, uh, two lakes, Lake Nicaragua and Lake Manuga. Managua, excuse me. <laughs> uh, Managua. I'm pretty sure I pronounced that badly. Um, but it Keep in mind, too, like the Spanish didn't, you know, the Spanish colonization efforts weren't bringing families. They weren't bringing their wives. And so they're forcefully taking women from these uh, indigenous communities. And so you get that mestizo mix very early on because, you know, women aren't coming along with the Spanish. And so there's forceful marriage, forceful rape. Eventually, you have a mixture of people forming that mestizo class that we had talked about before in the different hierarchies. So again, just a, just a reason that we talked about these kind of things before so that we don't have to go into too much detail now, but keep that in mind. Uh, you do get like an indigenous population that's used as slave labor, diseases, um, population movement, uh, which leads to, you know, diseases spreading even more, the kind of stuff we talked about very early on. And basically with all of that, uh, you fast forward a little bit forward, uh, a little bit more. And 1610 kind of marks one point of interest where you end up having a volcano eruption that destroys the city of Leon. And that is basically what you can think of as a marker of the, the ending of the, of the Spanish uh, colonization that was taking place. Yeah, and that, that city got wiped out, and it, it's later on that Spanish rule has ended pretty much after, like we had talked about, Hirsch, where you have um, the Spanish Empire 
losing control where the Habsburgs are coming in and out of power. You have Napoleon taking over, leading to chaotic um, situation in Europe, which obviously affects the new world. Mass independence and, you know, uh, revolutionary movements going on. 1821, uh, Nicaragua becomes part of the first Mexican empire after Spanish rule. They gain total independence eventually by 1838. Part of what's going on there, they have uh, Great Britain is involved because Great Britain had claimed the Mosquito Coast as part of a protectorate since at least the 1650s. So not only did you have Spanish colonization, you had British colonization. You also had connections to uh, the United States but through far, as far back as the American Revolutionary War because of conflicts between Britain and Spain at that time. And, and Spain being obviously an enemy of Britain ended up having conflict uh, because of the wars that were going on. Everything was always in, involved in one way or the other with these different empires. It's actually kind of crazy to think about for a second, the fact that like because of our war, that we were also also exacerbating another war with the country we were at war with. Yeah, it just it it it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> like you know what I mean? It's just it, it's just one of those things that I just I I think about it and I chuckle. I don't know. Yeah, and th- this is also the time period that you start to see the faction of the liberals versus the conservative elites fighting against each other for control of cities like Granada, control of the government. The, it usually breaks out in the civil war. You start to see this going on in the 1840s, 1850s. We had talked about that a lot previously in episodes before too, where you have these two groups usually of the elite fighting over control. Because again, they're just trying to replace whoever left the hierarchy at the top before. They're not trying to recreate a new system in, in as many social or economic ways as you would think. They're really just trying to pl- replace whoever was at the top before and, and take that power and control for themselves. And so you start to see even people like uh, there's this guy from the United States named uh, William Walker who tries to set himself up as president of Nicaragua after like a bullshit election in 1856. Like it's just, it's a chaotic situation because of the conflict that's going on. Well, and it's important to take note too, right? Like the use of power vacuums is one that's always interesting to me because a lot of people have this idea, right? That, oh, well, you know, all we have to do is take out um, this person in power and then we can put this next person in and they're going to get this done. But really what it comes down to, like you had mentioned, like it's not necessarily about like coming in and exerting any sort of power that they want to do. It's about just keeping things business as usual, just as long as they're the one that's benefiting off of it now. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and the context to keep in mind, again, is the Monroe Doctrine. And if you look at who is coming to power in this period, not only is the Monroe Doctrine influential, but you eventually have Teddy Roosevelt coming into power and his, his uh, ideas about diplomacy being very proactive. Um, pumping up the American Navy so that you can protect these interests in, in the Americas, whether it's business interests or just keeping out European powers or other people you don't want in power, even in those countries. You have the dollar diplomacy stuff that we had talked about before. So again, we kind of covered a lot of this before. So if you want, go back to previous episodes, check it out again. If you want to have a little bit more background info or look it up again, 
but that's kind of why we did all this so we don't have to go into too much detail again. Um, yeah. One thing to keep in mind as background, though, is one of the important things that they wanted to get going was a possibility of a canal going across Nicaragua because, like I'd mentioned, you have a country who has a coastline on both the Pacific and the Atlantic. If you can cut across there, that's going to help American shipping. We had talked a little bit in the Banana Wars episode, I believe, and maybe the episode where we got more in deep, more in depth on the Roosevelt diplomacy about how effective that was for American business interests, where it cut the time for shipping from the West Coast to the East Coast dramatically and made business much more efficient, made it so that people were able to sell goods and make more money. And that's always going to be something that interests the United States when it comes to Latin America. Yeah. If you can make a dollar off of it, that's all that fucking matters, right? Um, yeah. And and one little tidbit of interesting facts is, and, and one of the main reasons why uh, we're bringing up the use of the Panama, uh, or not the Panama Canal. See, look at that. I'm so used to it. Uh, but one of the reasons that we, <laughs> one of the reasons we bring up the canal is is also because uh, fun little fact. Uh, during the California Gold Rush, uh, Nicaragua was also one of the key uh, points of providing travelers uh, to get from the eastern United States and eventually go back down and sail through that if, if need be, whether it be, uh, you know, the Caribbean, um, lower parts of Florida, etc. Yeah, because it, it was still less expensive and less time consuming than just going across land. Well, and also a lot less dangerous, too. Yeah. No, and so you have, you have some rubbing against the United States, but really the United States becomes involved, like I said, because of interest and stuff like uh, a possible canal, because of business interest, because of railroads that are going on, where you have, like I said, the liberals and conservatives fighting amongst each other. That basically leads to a chaotic situation where the United States is able to kind of force themselves into the situation after a guy who was president named Zelaya, he is basically trying to at least regulate some of the foreign influence on the economy and natural resources. There are a bunch of revolutionaries who include, happen to include a couple of Americans who were eventually executed by order of Zelaya. That gets the attention of the United States military, United States State Department, or not the State Department. I don't think that's what it was called at the time, but the United States uh, interest, I'm sorry for lack of a better word. You know, they were there to protect U.S. lives and property is always the, the calling card that they use. Later on, you have another president, Adolfo Diaz, who asked this guy, who was a general, Luis Mania, to resign. He thinks that Mania is going to lead an insurrection. Mania was a liberal, and Diaz was obviously a conservative who was supported by the U.S. Mania leaves, but... Eventually, he ends up leading what becomes another civil war. In 1914, though, something that's going to be very important is the Brian Chamorro Treaty, which kind of gives control back to some parts of Nicaragua, but the United States is going to have interest in a canal zone along with defense of that canal zone. United States is going to leave. But another violent conflict later on in 1926, again, between liberals and conservatives, is going to bring them right back in. And I just want to point out, too, that I, you know, as as I was getting ready and prepping notes and everything for this uh, podcast, 
I was looking at the occupation date uh, for the United States Marines, right? 1912 to 1933, there's a nine-month period where they do uh, shift operations and, and kind of do a bit of a withdrawal. And I kept thinking about how uh, parallel it is to the situation in Afghanistan, where there was that lull in Afghanistan, not necessarily where we withdrew, but we focused our shift on Iraq. Yeah, and, we talked about it. And yeah, and nobody was like saying saying one peep about it. But I just thought it was really uh, bizarre that once again, a, a subject that we're talking about having to do with a complete different part of the world um, in a di- complete different time frame is running parallel with current events that are going on right now. No, absolutely. And you see the threats to, to business interest. You know, that's always going to be the, the main thing that goes on. And that was, you know, you're also going to see later on the threat of communism, and that's going to rear its head in Afghanistan as well uh, in the United States uh, thinking. Um, one thing I did forget to mention was uh, 1912, something called the Knox Castillo Treaty, which basically put the U.S. in charge of Nicaragua's financial system. So not only do you have military occupation, but you have economic control as well. At that point, the only thing that's really left is like what agriculture, which I mean, they basically had a control of because of the banana wars. So, well, exactly, and that not they may not have direct U.S. control of that, but it's going to be either U.S. corporations or corporations who are working with U.S. and and European financing. Yeah, exactly, because as we had mentioned before, it's something that you know people listening are going to keep hearing, and they're going to start repeating it: the Monroe Doctrine, which specifically made sure that any country from this region in specific had no way of choosing or dictating the market that they would be able to participate in. Yeah. Sorry about that. I drink went down the wrong uh, tube there. (laughs) No, you're Um, all good, dude. As long as you're okay. No, I'm all good. But uh, no, exactly. And we may be repeating ourselves, but again, that's because a lot of the stuff that we talked about before it's happening in Nicaragua as well. It's happening in Latin America as a whole, which is why we, we focus on the things that we did before. So sorry if we're repeating ourselves, but this kind of thing tends to repeat. Can't help it. But you have that civil war breaking out again in 1926. One of the people who ends up taking center stage is a rebel general named Augusto Cesar Sandino, who from 1927 until 1923 is leading a guerrilla war effort against the, at first the conservative regime, and eventually against the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, oh, one of the things I forgot to mention, sorry, Hirsch, about that original occupation, is one of the people who is heavily involved in their early occupation with the Marines is uh, our old friend Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler! Yeah, and if, if you don't remember everybody, we talked about him in the Banana Wars episodes. He was the highly decorated Marine who eventually spoke out against U.S. imperialism and against the capitalist system, which was basically forcing these countries through military force to to give up their economies, whether through elite control or just direct control by the United States. So Smedley Butler is involved in that early occupation. Um, one of the names that also comes up in uh, Mena's Rebellion, that guy I talked about, was a, a colonel, I believe at the time, named uh, Pendleton. And that's the guy who Camp Pendleton is named after. He was a Marine for over 40 years. So you're pretty big uh, military history names if anybody's interested in that kind of stuff. And I just want to quickly say, you had said 1923. Did you mean 1933? 
1927 till 1933. I think that's what I meant to say earlier. Yeah. 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 I might have misspoke. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Thank um, you for correcting that. No, I just wanted to quickly because I, I just I wasn't sure if maybe I misheard, but I, I wanted to just in case you had. Um, and so when when you get to 1933, that's when you see um, Americans leave again and they don't really leave. They kind of do uh, and again to, to draw a comparison to modern times. Uh, they, they basically do the same thing what we had done with the Afghanistan government where you see military as well as CIA uh, trained um, uh, nationals and they've set up what was known as the Guardia Nacional, also known as uh, translated to the National Guard, which was basically a combination of military as well as police forces that, again, were trained and equipped by the by the United States. And they were basically uh, they were supposed to be for Nicaragua, but essentially it was uh, it, it was an assurance policy from the United States and its uh, intelligence agencies to know that they would at least have armed resistance if need be. Yeah, and, and part of that agreement for the pullout and setting up the, the National Guard is that Hoover, who, who was president at the time, was never really a fan of the occupation, mainly for economic reasons, especially with the Great Depression going on. There was a lot of pressure to stop spending as much uh, on the empire and bring some of that home because of the Great Depression and all the, all the economic turmoil that people were experiencing. And so Hoover starts to pull out. They're eventually out by 1933, like Hirsch had said. They set up the National Guard kind of to take over for the United States Marines. Like Hirsch had mentioned, they're, they're, they are Nicaraguan in name, but they're really there for U.S. interest especially U.S. business interests, because like we had mentioned before, that early 1912 occupation, it was all about making sure that a certain railroad was basically okay for, for business interests to keep on using. The, the goal ended up being, you know, control of the Nicaragua's financial system. It's the same kind of thing over and over again. Um, the reason I had brought up Sandino is, you know, not only does he have an important role in the Civil War that, that had just wrapped up, but his name ends up living on in the future revolution that we're going to be talking about more in detail here in a moment. But the person who ends up being one of the directors for the National Guard is a guy named Anastasio Somoza Garcia. He is able to, through family connections, through military and political connections, basically get himself to be the leader of the National Guard. He, at the end, San, Sandino is able to kind of make peace with the president of Nicaragua. But Somoza Garcia is able to convince the president that no, we need to take Sandino out. And so unfortunately what ends up happening to Sandino is that as he's leaving a meeting with the president at, at, at the president's house, his car, he, he has a couple of generals with him, a couple of his, of his supporters with him. His car is stopped. He is pulled out, and he, along with the people that were with him in his car, are executed, and their bodies are never really found officially. Um, they also end up killing pretty much all of his supporters because he was a liberal in the most part, but he also had eventually been influenced by the Mexican Revolution because he ends up spending some time in, in Mexico while he's kind of in exile. 
And so he gets influenced by these indigenous ideas, by these, um, Mar- by these Marxist ideas. And he brings a little bit of that home to him, to Nicaragua. And so he had this whole group that was basically trying to like start their own kind of land development, you know, and stuff like that. And they all end up getting wiped out by the government as well. Mind too, that, that land development talking about was full of men, women, and children. It wasn't just, uh, yeah, it wasn't like it an wasn't, army. It wasn't soldiers. Because, I mean, the thing was, right, part of the agreement and part of the negotiation between uh, Sandino and the Nicaraguan government was he he had basically asked for uh, land to build that uh, that colony that was that he was using to to be self-sustainable. And on top of that, he had asked for 100 armed men. Right. So it was very clear and he wanted to set very clearly that regardless of whatever he may be responsible for, those people that are working those fields or those farms have nothing to do with him. That was kind of at least in my interpretation of that move and his bargaining that that's what I think that he was trying to do with that. Um, But yeah, as you had mentioned, he had got invited to a dinner. And as he was leaving, the National Guard uh, had had pulled him over, kidnapped him, and then eventually executed him. Yeah, pretty shady shit. And but his legacy goes to live on not only in what we're going to be talking about with the Sandinistas, where not only are they they named themselves after him, but his uh, iconic hat, boots, and uh, the use of his silhouette becomes very very widespread. He was his influence is, is noted by people like Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Hugo Chavez. Um, his brand of guerrilla warfare basically influenced people like Castro, obviously, uh, FARC that we're going to be talking about in Colombia, the Sandinistas, and the FMLN that was fighting in El Salvador around the same time as what we're going to be talking about later on. So Samosa, um, you know may have been able to get it over on him, but Sandino, I think, ends up being becoming a much more iconic figure. And the occupation comes to an end, like Hirsch had talked about. The National Guard ends up taking control, taking the place of the United States Marine Corps. Samosa is able to arrange it where he becomes president. He deposes the... uh, the president Sakasa from the presidency, he makes himself president in 1937. This leads to a period of 43 years um, that was heavily U.S. engineered, by the way, where the Samosa family, in one way or the other, is ruling Nicaragua. They're pretty much always in control of the National Guard. And even if there is another president, it's usually just a puppet who is serving under their orders and with their approval. Samosa himself, you know, he had eliminated those rivals. He deposed the president. He won that rig election, like I talked about in 1937. Eventually, though, he is assassinated in 1956 by a poet, um, a liberal poet, um, who takes him out. Again, it's that conflict between liberals and conservatives. You don't really even have a, a, a far left getting involved at this time. His son is able to take control, who I think was leader of the House or like equivalent of the House of Representatives at the time, Hirsch, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, that's basically from my understanding. And his name is Luis Samosa 
Dibale or Dibale. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. D-A-B-A-Y-L-E. Sorry for the mistake there. <clears throat> he becomes president. He's seen as somewhat more moderate, you know, whatever the fuck that means for a dictator. But he eventually dies of a heart attack and isn't in power all that long, more than a couple years, I don't believe. Uh, there's a puppet successor after him, uh, again, in, in president in name only. And then Estasio Samosa Dibale, sorry for the confusing names here, but he's often just called Samosa to keep it short. He becomes president in 1967. He's going to be facing much of, much of the revolution that we're going to be talking about here as far as that goes. But just to give a little bit of context, the, by 1970, the Somoza family, through shady dealings, through making sure that they're in control of, of pretty much all the wealth, land, and financing of Nicaragua, they own 23% of the land. I believe I saw a number that the family fortune at that time was uh, pegged at around 500 million, but it could have been as high as 1.5 billion. And I don't think those numbers are adjusted for inflation. I think that's that, you know. that's yeah, that's what's fucking scary. And one of the ways that he was able to get a lot of uh, a lot of his wealth, just to give me an idea of how shady this asshole was. Um, in 1972, there was a massive earthquake that took place, right? And instead of using the money that was to, you know, rebuild, you know, buildings, infrastructure, everything like that, he siphoned it off and put it into his bank account. So just to give me an idea of just how shady he was and how much he didn't care. Well, and the only way they did end up using some of the money, Hirsch, in that same situation with the earthquake, because it was a terrible earthquake in 1972 that uh, that befell one of the cities. There seems to be a lot of earthquakes and volcanoes and shit. It's a very, like, unstable place, um, not just, you know, politically. Uh, some of those relief funds not only were embezzled, but the people, they never rebuilt the area. They had people move, and the contracting companies and the building companies were all owned by, by the family. So any money, it was like Trump, you know, with like always pointing people towards businesses that he owned for like, you know, U.S. Uh, official money it was the same kind of shit. And yeah. one of the things that I found interesting just because of my baseball interest uh, in the history of baseball is one of the earliest biographies I've read of any baseball player was about a guy named Roberto Clemente, who was a great player for the Pittsburgh Pirates and one of the early Latin American stars. Um he was from Nicaragua, I believe. He was at least from maybe a neighboring country, but he ended up setting up a charity where he was trying to fly down to because he knew that the money wasn't getting people that needed it. And so he decided he was going to fly down to Nicaragua himself to get the money to people who really needed it. And unfortunately, there was a plane crash where he ended up dying. And on the very last day of the season before he had left, he had gotten his 3,000th hit. And so he has exactly 3,000 hits. You know, he eventually got into the Hall of Fame and that kind of stuff after, after he had died. But it's one of those things where if he hadn't, if this family hadn't been so fucking corrupt, he wouldn't have had to fly down there. And who knows if he would have kept on playing for a couple more years and had success, you know? Yeah. And I think, I, I think when you see stories like that, I, I, one of the more important things to remember is that it really it, the concept of being political as an athlete is nothing new 
right? No, exactly. Like, so much in media right now, we see this manipulation of the idea, right? Like, what was the one, what was the name of that one stupid fucking hag that's on Fox where she said, shut up and dribble to LeBron, right? Oh, like, that was, uh, was that, uh, Laura Ingram? That yeah. Yeah. I, something, something like that. What, what cracks me up is the fact that, like, all of these motherfuckers that want to say shit like, you know, shut up and dribble or, you know, stand for the flag. If you ask them, like, some of the greater athletes, right, like, some of them will disingenuously say shit like Muhammad Ali, who was, like, if not one of the most outspoken athletes way ahead of his time when it came to being, like... Oh, and he was hated for it. Just like if you look at, like, popularity, like, polling on people like Martin Luther King before his death, or, like, the time of his I Have a Dream speech and shit like that. Like, people didn't like him. You know, and one of the things to keep in mind about putting the context of Roberto Clemente and how important he was to baseball is his Pittsburgh's Pirates team. Um, man, I can't remember the exact date, but I was just reading an article about it the other day. They were actually the first in the modern integration era. They were the first team to ever field an all black and all Latino lineup. So it was all black or Latino pitching, you know, hitting. And it was the first time that had happened in, in modern Major League Baseball history. And so he was an important part of not only just a great player, but an important part of opening up baseball to, to more than just white people. Yeah. And so um, it was really too bad that he got taken away. But yeah, you had the Samosa family through corporate bribes, industrial monopolies, land grabs, uh, foreign aid siphoning. This ends up leading to mass revolt. And as early as 1961, you have a group that, that comes across, that comes out that calls itself the, uh, the Frente Sandinista de Liberación Nacional, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, uh, the acronym FL, FSLN. And they had named themselves, again, after the gentleman that we had talked about who was assassinated under the orders of Somoza, that was uh, Sandino. And so that's where the Sandinista name comes from. And you may know the Sandinista name because of what we're going to be talking about today, but I had always wondered where the name actually came from. They weren't a, a Marxist organization, necessarily. They did have socialist leanings, but they weren't out-and-out out Marxist. Like, if you look at what they, what they were fighting for and what they eventually put into, in, into effect, it was basically a social democracy and a mixed economy. It was much closer to, like, what we would think of as, like, Europe, European socialism or, like, stuff that, like, Bernie Sanders was talking about as opposed to outright Marxism. And we're going to talk about that more later on as we'll see how the Reagan administration tries to paint them. And it's not too, it's, it's not too long after the creation of the Sandinista movement where you eventually have that earthquake that we had mentioned before. Now, keep in mind, you have, you have the Samosa family that has been ruling for, uh, for decades completely corrupt um not not only do you have a working class and a peasant class that is um that has growing animosity towards this family but you also have a lot of the people who who would typically be uh be part of the wealthy class that are starting to get upset because there's only one beak that's getting wet in the pond and that's you know as as much as uh 
being part of the class that has power, what good is having power if you don't have money to to compensate that? And so you started seeing a lot of fractioning, not just from uh, leftist movements, but you also started seeing fractioning from right movements. And in past episodes, as we talked about before, once you start seeing a fraction of anything on the when it comes to uh, conservative movements, whether it be within the political party or within the uh, the, the military, that's in, that's instantaneously grounds for the U.S. to come sneak in the CIA squad and just kind of shit on your parade. Yeah, they're going to take advantage of that chaotic situation. And you really have the, the middle class and the bourgeois are the ones who end up turning against the government, not only uh, the world population and the poor population. They were against them to begin with. But they're really starting to lose more of the political class, more of the elite class along the way, too. And you have in the 1970s these raids and successful kidnappings where the Sandinistas are, are getting support from the majority of the population. They're almost seen as like a Robin Hood kind of force. Well, and it's important, too, right, because I think uh, it, it's before it would probably be hard to to try to imagine why exactly uh, those from the middle class would, especially after some sort of um, natural disaster, why they would essentially uh, jump ship when it comes to political ideology or at least lean a different way for once. And I think one of the best examples to look at, especially right now, would be COVID. I think uh, a lot of people that are part of the middle class or the bourgeois class, as, as some refer to it, um, a lot of people had started waking up and realizing that those mundane jobs, those jobs that they would always hear people say, you know, if you don't like it, get something better. Um, you started seeing a mass awakening when it came to uh, uh, labor movements as, as well as union movements. People started realizing like, hey, it's kind of fucked up that my job can just kind of like fire me whenever the hell they want to or just kind of withhold my funds whenever they want to. Like I should have more and better and fair representation. Um, so anytime that you see a natural disaster, it's very much likely that you'll see not only, uh, like we had mentioned, the, the lower class get upset, but you'll also see the, the middle class start to rise up too, because they're not getting what they're, what they're used to. Well, and they start to see the cracks in the system and the system is starting to look bad. And, and if we know anything from <clears throat> the last four or five years of what we experienced in the United States here is the elite hates it when the establishment looks bad. And we're seeing that now with the Afghanistan pullout is that they hate how bad Joe Biden is making the American empire look like that's what the, you know, that's the operation mockingbird kind of stuff that's in effect. Yeah. And in the background of all this, not only do you have economic stuff going on, but all these attacks are provoking censorship, uh, violence and retribution from the government and military where you have the national guard, basically uh, attacking people who they believe are Sandinistas or even uh, who, who they suspect of being connected to Sandinistas, where there's a lot of um, killings of innocent people, uh, people who maybe are connected to the Sandinistas, but really are getting targeted by state violence at a horrible rate. In 1977, the Carter administration actually reacts to these killings by cutting off U.S. aid to, the, to Nicaragua at the time. One of the few things that you see where the United States actually does respond to to a terrible government inflicting horrible atrocities on its own people. Carter does have some horrible diplomatic stuff when it comes to Southeast Asia. But overall, 
I think his view on Latin America specifically, and if you look at Carter's view on it, like the Middle East nowadays and that kind of thing, I think the Carter administration is one of the one of the few examples where you do have a couple of spots of of decent diplomatic at, at activity and action, especially compared to what we're going to see coming along right after him. Yeah, but the thing was with some of the aid that he would give, right? Like a lot of that was eventually curtailed because of uh, well, there's always strings attached. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the one of the key one of the key provisions, right, for the for the humanitarian aid that he was going to send was there was a clause where there would be a forfeiture of the aid if they were to find out that they were going to be helping different insurgencies and countries, oh, kind of like uh, the see, that, shit. Yeah, that's when the Sandinistas come to power. Um, this is like before the Sandinistas are able to come to power that they they cut off aid to the to the government oh, yeah, and the National Guard. Right. I didn't no, mean no. to jump in too much. No, but... no, but you're right because the Carter administration does later on attach strings to financial aid that's given to the Sandinista government, saying that you can't help uh, insurgencies in other countries. You're absolutely 100 percent correct. But at the time of uh, before, shortly before this, when um, when Somoza and others are still in power. You have a gentleman named Jose Daniel Ortega Savadera, nor no known as just Daniel Ortega, who was a leader of a, a group within the FSLN, who ends up aligning with non-communist groups who are opposed to the government. You have the killing of a journalist and editor named Pedro Joaquin Chamardo uh, Cordovo. I hope I pronounced that okay, where... That really sets a lot of people over the edge, especially that elite class who believes in stuff like freedom of the press. That was in 1978, where, um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that really ends up spreading to mass riots that break out in the capital city, Managua, that targets specifically the, Minoza, uh, the Somoza regime. There's a general strike that calls for the end of the regime. Um, so not only are businesses getting shut down, you have labor unrest. You have the U.S. State Department and the Carter administration pulling out support. It's starting to look really bad for the Simosa regime. Eventually, the Sandinista. Oh, go ahead, Hirsch. Oh no, I was just going to say, and it's and it's just another telltale, like a reoccurring theme of the same exact regime that America had propped up through its occupation and training of you know the National Guard unit that we had mentioned earlier. Uh, that same family that used that same National Guard unit to prop itself to power was then abandoned by the very same people that propped them up at in their moment of need. So just something to keep in mind. No, and it was really that assassination that pushed everything over the edge where you really see business interests starting, businesses starting to get targeted. And that's where the United States is like, okay, we, we're, we're, we're going to pull out our support for this kind of stuff. Well, I mean, you know, the at, at that point, right, the United States government had kind of adapted the mafia policy where it's, you know, if we're going to the fucking mattresses, as they say, like there's nobody can earn. Right. So mm -hmm. if if you're a dictator and you're executing a bunch of people in prisons, we don't give a shit. But if you're like fucking car bombing and assassinating people in broad daylight, like that's when, you know, that's when the, the Google ad doesn't pop up on your YouTube video. You know what I mean? It's well, kind of hard it to get that going. If there's riots and strikes, demonstrations and tanks in the street, like it's hard for business to go along, right? Yeah. Well, at yeah. least back then, nowadays, you could probably get a fucking sponsorship or something. So, well, we, we saw last summer that business was able to, to only really 
not be as effective because of COVID going on. But then once business was able to take control of the narrative, that shit got shut down pretty quick. Yep. Um, but yeah, you have the the FSLN is ballsy enough to pull off a massive kidnapping operation. They're actually able to capture the natural, National Palace while the legislature, the Congress is in session. They take 2,000 hostages. They end up demanding, you know, uh, release of any political prisoners. Um, this basically leads to the recognition that the Sarosa government is, is done. Uh, in early 1979, the Organization of American States, which usually is a force for pretty much no good in this region, negotiates a, a peace between the FSLN and the government. That breaks down because the Somoza regime really has no interest in any democracy taking place. But the FSLN is able to take over most of control of the country by June of 1979. Um, in July, Somoza resigns after the forces are able to enter the capital. He gives control of the government over the revolutionary movement. Somoza flees to Miami. His uh, nationalist liberal party becomes, in all sense and purposes, dissolved. Pretty much what you see, though, in response is a lot of the business elite and anybody who is connected to him leave in exile. There's a lot of a bourgeois kind of land-owning elite, the business interest who end up leaving, going to places like the United States, where they form the backbone of what's going to be the support for these uh, for the rebels that are going to be fighting against what becomes the Sandinista regime. Correct. Which I had jumped the gun on, and I apologize. No, no, you're okay. Somoza ends up trying to go to Paraguay, where he is eventually assassinated in September of 1980 by Argentinian revolutionary, uh, excuse me, members of the Argentinian Revolutionary Workers Party. Because part of what was going on is because of like stuff like Operation Condor, which we had talked about in the last episode. Um, Argentina was heavily involved in the civil in the civil war that was going on in in uh, Nicaragua because of the dictatorship in Argentina, the heavy right wing, you know, the, the sharing of resources basically between these right wing regimes that we had talked about the last time. And so Argentinians are pissed off at fucking Nicaragua because of stuff that was going on with their right wing government helping each other out. And so the Sandinistas take power in July, like I had mentioned. At first, they are the leader of a uh, what was called uh, the Junta of National Reconstruction. Eventually, they hold power through elections in 1984, but that's a little bit of getting ahead of ourselves. But they do end up becoming democratically elected. I just wanted to mention that early on here. But like Hirsch had said, the Carter administration does say they're going to work with the Sandinistas and recognize them as long as they don't support outside insurgencies. You know, the Sandinistas taking power scared the shit out of the right wing and pretty much the, the elite in State Department military interest because it was seen as another Cuba, right? And right. so we're gonna we're gonna do anything we can to stop any kind of Soviet influence in this region. But like I mentioned before, the Sandinistas, what they end up putting into place, their their land reforms, any kind of reforms they do put into place, they're not really going for a full on communist system. They they seek European support as opposed to Soviet support if they're not going to go for you know, because there is pretty much a high there's a very much a high anti-American sentiment because of the occupation and other stuff like that. So they're not going to go to the United States. They don't want to go to the Soviets. They're going to try to go to the Europeans for any kind of financial aid and any kind of uh, foreign aid kind of support. 
but the U.S. still is going to paint them as totalitarian and Marxist. You know, they're going to paint the Contras as, as the people that we're going to be talking about in the future here as freedom fighters against them. So pretty much, no matter who you are, if you aren't willing to play ball completely, and if you or if you aren't a conservative dictator, the United States wants nothing to do with you being in power. And before we start to get in, Hirsch, to the uh, to the Contra stuff and everything like that, was there anything you wanted to mention first about the Sandinistas coming to power? Um, no, I, I mainly just wanted to, to bring up with uh, the reason why they were able to, to come to power and with the, with the Samosa family. Um, and it's just, it's, it's another, uh, it's another case that I think, um, again, we can apply to modern, modern times and just kind of understand that different forms of nepotism are very dangerous. Uh, and, and it shouldn't even matter necessarily what side. Um, like we'll, we saw it in the Trump administration with, you know, Jared Kushner's and, and, and his kids and, the, and Ivanka. And then, you know, we see it in the Biden administration, um, with numerous people, even, you know, I don't even want to say certain names to give them clout, but, you know, people getting put as in, in charge of, uh, the defense department that were literally like responsible for, uh, getting us into the fucking mess that we're supposed to be getting out in the first place and stuff like that. Um, and just helping out different family members. And, and I think that anytime that you see that, it's uh, you, you kind of see what we're seeing now in our country, which is the crumbling and foundation of any sort of belief that there is a system uh, worth upholding. And it's important to understand with the Sandinista movement that, as my brother had mentioned, they were more than willing to work with European interests because for a very long time uh, throughout the Nicaraguan government, even if it was liberal or conservative, there was always this idea of uh, what's the best way of putting it? Um, uh, well, I guess we could just call for what it is. National uh, nationalistic interest, right? They wanted to make sure and ensure that all Nicaraguan natural resources were going to be uh, worked on by Nicaraguans and the people who would see the benefits of it would be Nicaraguans. Um, didn't necessarily fall so much for on the conservative side of it, but there definitely were some members of the conservative party who definitely fell in line with some of the nationalistic points of view. And I just wanted to point that out. No, and you're absolutely right to point out though the danger of nepotism, because in this case, that civil war ended up causing more than 130,000 casualties. And so there are, you know, horrible repercussions in some cases for these kind of things. And to, to move on a little bit, like I mentioned before, um, Sandinistas, while they weren't completely Marxist, they do end up getting accused of, of wanting to move into a type of Cuban socialism. You end up having splits between uh, members of the governing junta, where you have some of the more liberal and centrist forces who are going to eventually kind of turn against the Sandinistas in power. And in 1980, $60 million in U.S. aid is suspended when there's evidence presented that the Sandinistas are supporting rebels in El Salvador. Like I mentioned before, I think that was the, uh, the FNL, FNLN or something like that. I'm sorry for messing up the, the acronym there, but it's basically a similar force in El Salvador that's fighting against a, a horrible dictatorship. You're going to see in, the, in this future conflict coming up, 
pretty much a, a, another another example of what Hirsch and I talked about in those Gladio episodes, the strategy of tension. Where once you have Ronald Reagan come into, into power as president of the United States, part of the Reagan doctrine at the time is, is a major focus on the rollback of any kind of Soviet expansion. And that's in places like Nicaragua, as we're going to see, but also Afghanistan, where you have the arming of the Mujahideen, you all <clears throat> fighting against the Soviets. You have arming the forces in Iran against Iraq and the conflict that was going on there. And so you have a lot of stuff going on with this within this Reagan doctrine that's going to come to affect it as well. Well, in the Reagan doctrine is it's important to to talk about, and I think it's the reason one of the main reasons why we wanted to do Latin America is because uh, the Carter administration kind of was. I guess the best way of putting it a catalyst, but the Reagan administration that eventually came in is basically the, is, is the big bang, the creation of a lot of the modern policies that we see. And I just wanted to point out because we're, we're talking about all these different countries that the, the cold war is something that when you bring it up, especially to a lot of the younger generations. Now you bring up the cold war and they don't really have any idea besides maybe you know, Call of Duty, what they told them, or a couple movies that maybe their dad or an uncle would watch or something like that. Um, but basically, the best way to think of it is, you know, the war against communism is no different than the war against terrorism. And it's important to have these vague concepts, right? Like, you know, the war on drugs. It's, it's vague concepts where it's the name is appealing and it's able to grab your attention, but it's not specific enough to where when it comes to like legality and constitutional type rights, um, there's not enough there to create any form of basis of protection for people who are being uh, pursued against, whether it be through the courts, through the military, through the government. And it's important to keep that in mind. Yeah, and what we're basically going to see is a, really a proxy war that the United States is going to be fighting in what it sees as another aspect of the Cold War. The Reagan Doctrine, like I mentioned before, is very focused on demonstrating strength to the Soviets and to the world, especially after defeats like places in Vietnam. It's basically reemphasizing that the Monroe Doctrine still applies, especially to the Soviets, and that Central America is going to be the premier battleground against any kind of Marxist spread or Soviet influence. And so... U.S. support of the Samosa regime had fed into anti-American sentiment in the Sandinistas and others. They, like I had mentioned before, they have an alliance with European countries they're trying to go after. When that doesn't really work, they do go to Cuba. And they're like, hey, if we're going to be cool with anybody, let's be cool with Cuba. And that, of course, is seen as a major threat by the United States. And the Contras, the group that becomes known collectively as the Contras, are gross of these opposition groups. Some, like I had mentioned, who become disillusioned with the Sandinistas and what they think they're doing. Um, even a couple indigenous groups who are, who are um, unfortunately on the losing end of a couple regime ideas from the Sandinistas. And also mainly, they're going to be composed of former National Guard members. And Hirsch, if you wanted to, to go in a little bit about what Reagan and the CIA get into, I have to use the restroom really, really quickly. I'll be right back. <laughs> I feel like... Uh... Garth right now on Wayne's Rose, like I sorry to do that, man. Everyone, no, 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 no. Oh, yes. you're quick as possible. Fine. No, 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 you're good. You're you're good. Um, I'll, I'll set it up for you. 
so basically, uh, as my brother had mentioned, he was pre-alluding to, you have Ronald Reagan, who uh, is working alongside the CIA, and it is essential for him as well as uh, the military and the intelligence forces to establish uh, communications and a network to ensure that the communist threat that was taking place down in Latin America would be getting uh, taken care of. Now, when you have that start, you not only start seeing the amplification of um, military presence uh, included or or even CIA, but you also start seeing some of the economic stresses that start getting applied. One of the most favorite and, and tried and true methods that get applied in this instance when it comes to uh, um, policy that can be inducted with um, the approval of both Congress and the United States general public is economic sanctions. And with that, you, you really do see uh, stress and, and duress come upon the Sandinistan government because not only are they having to fight a war where they're uh, having to deal with infrastructure loss and they're also dealing with casualties and, and physical conflict, you also see the implementation of uh, um, psychological warfare and, like I had mentioned, uh, economic warfare get, get implemented through embargoes. All right. Sorry about that, everybody. I am back, Hirsch. I want to mentally apologize. Unfortunately, the setup we have, we can't pause the recording. So I do apologize for that real-time interruption. Uh, I was um, going to make the joke, have you ever seen that scene from Scanners? <laughs> yeah. No, it was per perfectly fine. I was just basically, while you were gone, um, you had mentioned uh, Ronald Reagan, the CIA, and I was just basically explaining... Um, the the importance that he realized of establishing the connections and uh, streamlining of communication between not just the United States government and the military, but as well as intelligence agencies and how important it was to establish uh, military power throughout the region as well as psychological and economic. No, absolutely. Um, it's a great way to summarize it. And the way this ties into the strategy of tension that we had talked about before where during this conflict, you're going to see a total of 30,000 deaths, um, whichever side you're talking about, whether it's innocent people, Sandinistas, or Contras. Um, the main focus was on damaging the economy and moving resources away from actually solving any kind of social or economic issues and having to focus on fighting an insurrection and a rebellion. They're making sure that the Sandinista government is never able to get any footing that there's always chaos and that people will look for a stronger, maybe right-wing government to take power instead. So you have the CIA <clears throat> authorized by Ronald Reagan covertly, by the way, you know, this is never put into official recognition. It's only later on that this stuff comes out, you know, against their will, where the CIA is going to help aid the Contras with funding, armaments, and training. Uh, an interesting thing I came across though, Hirsch, is they also create, this group that they called, uh, I don't know if it was UCLA's or UCLA's. I don't know if you came across that term. Actually, no, I don't think I did. It was unilaterally controlled Latino assets. And they were people that were basically special ops trained that would operate in places like Nicaragua. And they would do sabotage. They would uh, do attacks. They would be made to look like they were the Contras, but they were actually CIA connected like even more than the Contras were. They were direct CA, but it was like a false flag to make it look like the Contras were up to stuff 
to make it even more chaotic for the government. And so it, it's really this strategy of tension, like Gladio type shit. It's fucking nuts, dude. Yeah, and, and the Contras are operating out of, out of camps in Honduras, Costa Rica, all these neighboring countries. You also eventually have a person from the CIA um, mentioning that a lot of the operations took place from this place called the Mothership, which was located just off the coast of Nicaragua. So it's almost like uh, if you played the most recent Metal Gear game where you have that uh, that huge uh, like oil rig kind of thing out in the ocean that you're you're operating from and you have mother base and all those kind of ideas like it, it's kind of the same thing it's very metal gear-esque wait you don't mean to tell me metal gear solid is really just a real time documentary oh it's about politics i don't know if you realized oh dude. that's another one of those things video game people get upset about like i remember uh there was a guy who used to work for game informer i think he works for wwe now but he also worked for like uh giant bomb and a couple other things dan reichert but oh, he had yeah. he uh he had this discussion where he was like oh, i didn't really realize that metal gear was about politics and it's like you mean those 40 minute cutscenes about like nuclear war and all that kind of shit yeah it wasn't a dead giveaway you fucking oh my god dude Oh, yeah, so that was definitely one of those, oh my God, kind of moments. But yeah, the, the Contras, like, not only are they an insurgency rebellion that has U.S. support, but they're really committing these terrible atrocities, killings, raping, torture. There was stuff I saw described where they were gouging people's eyes out with spoon, um, mutilating people, uh, ripping flesh from bones, that kind of thing. Like, it was some pretty nasty, fucked up shit. Um, they're going after schools, they're going after co-ops, they're going after healthcare centers. Because again, it's about making sure that the infrastructure, that the, the, the change that the Sandinistas are trying to put in effect to possibly help their society, to help their economy, that it can't be successful. Well, and nothing, nothing can get uh, American support for intervention or, you know, if anything were to come out that there was intervention, then, you know, the the adroprop that you'll see of a blown up hospital, right? Because nothing presents the idea more of this government has no control than blown up buildings and, you know, images of kids crying, etc. And it, not only they're involved in the, the, basically a campaign of terror in like the rural parts of the country and against the social reform projects, but again, you have economic sabotage carried out by the United States. Like I mentioned before, those UCLA groups, the UCLAs, whatever you want to call them, they were actually caught placing mine, underwater mines in one of the ports. And the United States also placed a trade embargo. So they're, they're trying to fuck up the economy along with any of the infrastructure. Again, making sure that the strategy of tension can take effect. Um, they're also basically, they made a manual I think, I don't know, Hirsch, if you came across this too, that there was a manual called the Psychological Operations in Guerrilla Warfare that was created by the United States that was given to the Contras, which basically helped make them realize that you could go after civilians and kill them. It was basically like what we talked about with Operation Gladio, where you had that paramilitary manual that was released. It's the same kind of thing going on here. Yeah. Well, it's presenting, it's presenting the idea that, you know, Oh, that woman you see in that hut, you know, that's not a woman. That's a communist rebel who's going to go in that hut and grab an AK-47 and shoot you, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's a combatant. That's a, you know, and those are going to be terms that will 
um, will be seen used as language uh, to excuse the the torture and the the executions of civilians later on. Absolutely, and what you really see, especially on part of the Reagan administration and, and right wing conservatives, is is this hypocrisy. Of course, pointing out hypocrisy never changes anything, but you know they always end up talking about freedom and democracy, but it's really they're backing these anti-communist mercenaries who are going against a legitimate government. And there were a couple of quote, there was a quote I just really wanted to share really quick that um, kind of spoke to what I was talking about here. Let me see if I can find it again. Sorry to take a second. You're fine. Um, Never let it happen again. God damn it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, here we go. There's a historian, Greg Grandin, where he talked about, you know, uh, a contradiction between the official ideals of the U.S. and what the U.S. actually does when it ends up supporting terrorism and where you basically have state sponsored or uh, a sponsor of terrorism against the state one way or the other where he quote here, Nicaragua, where the United States backed not a counterinsurgent state, but anti-communist mercenaries. Likewise, represented a disjuncture between the idealism used to justify U.S. policy and its support for political terrorism. The corollary to the idealism embraced by the Republicans in the realm of diplomatic public policy debate was thus political terror. And the dirtiest of Latin America's dirtiest wars, their faith in America's mission justified atrocities in the name of liberty. And I I thought that pretty much summed up what we had talked about, not only with this, but with Operation Gladio, that you're pretty much willing to do anything in the name of preserving what you see as liberty, as long as it's liberty on your terms. Yeah. And and I like that quote, too, just because it also, um, you know, it's a nice preamble to the fact that we always end up seeing in a lot of these cases, um, the United States government, as well as these countries own governments willing to go at whatever lengths to continue uh, to to get their end game and to cover it up, even at the own cost of their own power. Right. Like even if it means that they start getting less power and they start getting more resistance, as long as they're able to control that narrative, that's all they care about. No, that that's really all it comes down to. And what's a, what's a little bit different about what Reagan's implementing, even compared to stuff that was done by people like Nixon, by people um, going as far back as Eisenhower that we had talked about in previous episodes, even as far back shit as Teddy Roosevelt and stuff like that, is this is all covert. This implementation of a lot of these uh, foreign policy activities are very covert. You know, it's done behind closed doors without a lot of public discussion. It's not out in the open like a lot of past American meddling was in Latin America. Um, so it is very different in that kind of way. You also see that there was a lot of propaganda by the United States in support of U.S. state um, sponsoring terrorism in this area. So not only were they trying to paint the contrast of freedom fighters and the Sandinistas as dangerous Marxists, but you have an example of 1984 where the Sandinistas actually do win elections in what's seen largely as free and fair elections where Daniel Ortega is elected president, but the Reagan administration does not recognize the results. Um, they say that, you know, the major right-wing candidate didn't, wasn't able to run, so this uh, shouldn't be official. But it turned out they had basically told this right-wing um, candidate not to run because it would make the election seem legitimate. And so they created a situation where it could never be legitimate would never be viewed in their eyes as as a, a worthy election. So it was never going to be uh, successful no matter what. 
the United States Congress does eventually kind of get sick of the United States constantly meddling. And you have what's called the Boland Amendment, where Congress basically forbids the United States from arming any more of the Contras. But Reagan didn't really give a fuck. Why would he? He's been doing this all behind closed doors before. He's not going to stop anytime soon. And so you have what becomes called the Iran-Contra affair. And I know, Hirsch, I was pretty, this is like basically when I was born in 1983 where Congress shuts down this funding. The Contra affair comes out a little bit later. But I know it's probably one of those things you've heard about, but you don't really necessarily know all the context before now. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, and, and basically what it comes down to is that Congress cut off the funding to to the Contras directly. So what Reagan does instead is he makes it so that we can sell arms as the United States to Iran, you know, a great country that, you know, has always been considered friendly with us because they're fighting against Iraq. And then we'll take that money from selling weapons and that kind of stuff to Iran and we'll give that money, part of it, to the Contras. And they'll also sell some cocaine on the side. Yeah, just a little cocaine, you know? Like, it's just not like bit. during the 70s and 80s that cocaine started booming in America or nothing. Mere yeah. coincidence. And so you have really high up involvement all the way up to Vice President at the time, George H.W. Bush, who had previously been involved in the CIA in the 1970s, whose family had been massively part of different State Department CIA operations, even possibly one of the uh, possible coups against FDR that we had talked about in another episode with Smedley Butler. But one of the people involved is Oliver North, and he eventually takes pretty much the largest bullet for this where he has three charges against him. He does eventually get a pardon later on. He doesn't really serve any time. He ends up leading an illustrious career as a right-wing commentator. And all I've had in my mind since I read his name was, uh, do you remember the episode of American Dad where he has the song about Oliver North? Yes, I. that's what I started thinking of as soon as you said that, honestly. Just and now cool. he's on Fox News, Ali <laughs> North. No, but that, uh, that was pretty much all I could think of for a moment there. But yeah, you have a really fucked up deal where they're like, hey, we're going to circumvent Congress. Fuck, you know, uh, any kind of check and balance, executive privilege overrules all. And the Iran-Contra affair is one of those things where it should have really been like an end for anybody who was connected to it. But because the United States is the way it is and nobody ever gets held accountable, it ends up being a huge scandal that that doesn't really amount to any kind of change in the way that anybody behaves. Wait, 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 wait. You mean to tell me an American president sold weapons and munitions to Iran? Yeah, and not, you, not only is it shady, but like the cover-up of it basically is like the beginning of what we can consider now like post-truth like so, politics. and what It was basically now. like a modern-day version of Fast and Furious, the shit that we always hear Republicans gripe about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was definitely like, hey, we're going to do this shady shit without anybody knowing, but we're not really breaking the rule that you told us not to break. It's always a workaround, you know? And, and 
I'm sorry. I just I, I wanted to, to iterate the importance too, right? And and one of the reasons that I was really looking forward to doing this episode is because, as we had mentioned, one of the key things that really brought the the Contra program to fruition and and allowed Reagan not only to go through these as it's referred to back channels to get it operating, but once people that were part of this program officially and unofficially, once they started seeing the money that was coming in, it was like night and fucking day. And you really start to see the complete boom of, of drug distribution and usage. And I think that one thing, if I can ask anyone who's listening, just look up, all of these different countries we've brought up and all of the different movements that were happening at the time, and then look up statistics for drug use spikes in the United States and tell me if coincidences are a real thing. Yeah. No, there's a direct corollary between the uh, U.S. war on drugs and the support for drug-run cartels or dictatorships. And as we're seeing with the Contras military death squads as well. And so you have funding coming from arm sales and drug sales going to death squads who are targeting hospitals, schools, and committing horrible atrocities. So that's just a, a little bit of what we were talking about where, <clears throat> you know, Gladio didn't just happen in Europe and it was something that ended up getting spread in any place that they saw the threat of communism possibly coming to power. And I think Hirsch just really quickly to kind of get things going towards, uh, towards the end here, you know, there's a state of emergency that's declared because of all these kind of contra attacks going on. Uh, rights are getting curtailed by the Sandinistas, but Basically, what's happening is the U.S. policy is forcing a failure in democracy and civil liberties, where the Sandinistas are never able to gain stability. They're never able to build up their economy, their infrastructure, their social programs, or even let people have civil rights. You know, they committed their own atrocities. I'm not going to justify that kind of thing. But it's a lot like any other, other example where if the United States doesn't want you to stay in power, they're going to make it really fucking hard for you to stay in power. And so, yeah, you, you eventually have a 19, the 1990s where the Sandinistas lose power to a coalition government, to a coalition force in 1990. They also lose in 1996, again in 2001, where you really saw a, a backlash against their policies and against what they had to do because of all that stuff that was going on. But Ortega does eventually come back to power in 2006. He's elected again, I believe, in 2016. Um, but you do really have a lot of unrest and protest going on in that country right now. He had tried to raise taxes while at the same time cutting government programs because he kind of came back as like a neoliberal version of himself from what I could tell, where he was a little bit more willing to work with people on the economic side of things. And so there's still protests and unrest that are going on in Nicaragua. I wish I knew a little bit more because unfortunately though, like I was telling Hirsch, 
a lot of the sources that are written in English are compromised in one way or the other, because of course it's going to be stuff that's filtered through the state department, filtered through capitalist corporate interest, where a lot of the good sources are going to be in Spanish. And unfortunately my Spanish is terrible in trying to make it through any of that kind of stuff. I El wish I knew terrible. more. Yeah. And, and just really quickly before we get to the very end here is that you have an example in the international court of justice where there actually was a case brought against the United States by Nicaragua that they had pretty much ruined their fucking country and that the U S had owed them reparations. The international court does end up ruling in their favor. The United States never recognizes that ruling. They eventually use their, their UN security council veto to overrule it. And then Nicaragua eventually drops it later on. But even then international courts, we're in agreement that stuff like the mining of the mining of ports, uh, the killing of innocent people, the the way they funded the Contras was was breaking all kinds of international laws, and just like Kissinger, uh, Reagan and his cronies probably belong in the Hague or would have belonged in the Hague before they all fucking died. Yeah, well, we can always dig them up and throw them in the cell. Yeah, and and you really see with that strategy of tension that you have all this chaos going on that doesn't really ever give. Uh, any kind of left wing who does come to power, any any possibility at success. Shit's rigged. Um, no, it truly is. It, it's rigged from. It's a rigged outcome. You know, it, it's self fulfilling prophecy. Where if you have an outset or a mindset, excuse me, from the out from the go, that these kind of regimes can never be successful, and they're always going to be despotic. They're always going to be suppressive against their people. Let's make sure that happens. You know, like that's what ends up happening. Yeah, and you know, funny enough, before before I joined the call with you, I was in the Discord, and just a few moments before I joined in, we had somehow got on the subject of uh, you know communism versus capitalism, and somebody had mentioned they were like, well, you know, the thing is like, communism doesn't really work, right? Like in theory, it might, but like it never really works. And I was like, well, that's the problem, though. Like, it's never been given a chance to. And I'm not even necessarily somebody that, like, considers himself communist, right? Like, I just, I'm at least able to admit the fact that, like, it's never been given a fair chance. And then I answered that. I was like, okay, well, like, what's so great about capitalism, right? And... Some of the people, you know, they had answered certain things and uh, somebody had said, and it was somewhat of a joke, but like a few people were like, yeah, that, but they had said corn. I was like, funny you say corn, like that's subsidized by the government, which is a socialist program. I was like, at the end of the day, right, there's always this argument from the United States government, especially back uh, during the Cold War sense, right, the Reagan administration, that communism fails capitalism wins and my argument is if capitalism is so great in a system that can feed itself why the fuck do we need charity no and to speak to that point i think something i had read pretty much summarizes what the whole goal of of reagan's effort was and what the outcome that they were searching for is you know this is pretty much all part of an attempt to return Nicaragua to the state of its Central American neighbors. That is where traditional social structures remained 
and American imperialist ideals were not threatened. And so you see the Iran-Contra affair breaks open a lot of the stuff that was going on. And we probably could have spent an entire episode just on the Iran-Contra affair itself. So definitely, if you're more interested in that, check it out. There's a lot of stuff out there. There's even more stuff out there about the Contras themselves, even about um, the Sandinistas, um, Somoza dynasty, even the current stuff going on. Definitely check it out. I, you know, Like we'd said, this isn't comprehensive. We're just trying to touch on the stuff that we think is the most important. But we, we could have done even more, I think, on the Iran-Contra stuff. But again, a lot of that stuff, sometimes you do end up getting into a lot of weeds, a lot of details. And we just want to make sure that we're showing the themes and the, the thesis overall that we have. And if you are interested more in that, uh, write in, ask us more. We can always address it or, you know, check it out yourself. It's really cool stuff. No, and, and I just wanted to uh, and wrap up with just kind of like a few thoughts for one thing that I wanted to go back to and, and kind of iterate for when it comes to terms of uh, granddaddy Reagan. Um he definitely paved the way, as I had mentioned before, uh, the way that presidents would um, start using executive power, uh, privileges, executive, you know, things like executive order, as well as the idea of um, not necessarily war, but military operations and campaigns um, through backdoor channels without needing the approval of Congress which, you know, kind of goes against the Constitution, but Republicans don't care about that thing. Um, and, and I think that this episode is a great opening and a uh, showing that it's it's kind of a uh, revolving door. We had the Banana Wars, which had taken place, you know, 50, 60 years before uh, current events, what we're talking about now. And at this point, it goes from, uh, banana wars to what we're going to see used from you know the uh, the Monroe Doctrine in the Reagan era eventually gets used in the modern era and we're and we're now living in what we can consider uh, the oil wars and it's one of those things it's in the moment it's hard to realize that you're living in history but we are living in history uh, especially you know my brother and myself. Uh, being the ages that we are, um, we had seen a lot, you know, when September 11th happened, I was 11 years old. So when the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq started, I was definitely old enough to uh, somewhat understand exactly what was going on and start seeing some of the changes and seeing the transition of everything and realizing that I've been a part of that history and seeing that, you know, instead of the banana wars, like I said, it's the oil wars. Instead of um, Bush, you know, going behind uh, Congress's back and using backdoor channels to start authorizing uh, boots on the ground in Afghanistan, it's Ronald Reagan, you know, here in Nicaragua or throughout Latin America or even over in the Middle East starting um, in the in the mid to late 70s, uh, early 80s um, when he was running. So. I think it's very important to get to this episode because now we are going to be able to focus a lot more um, on programs, ideals, and, and things of that nature, essentially. We still have a few more episodes to go. As we had mentioned before, we're going to be talking about Panama and Colombia. 
um, as well as possibly one or two more countries before we wrap up the. Well, definitely. And I, I think part of what you talked about with the oil wars is before then you have, as part of the dirty wars going on in Latin America, you have the drug wars, right? You have yeah, the exactly. expansion of cocaine in, in places like Bolivia and Colombia. So I definitely think we want to talk about maybe Panama next. And then we're going to be going into Bolivia, Colombia. And then I think our final Latin American episodes will be finally on Haiti, which is something we talked about a little bit, but I think deserves its own focus. And then last but not least, we'll kind of do like a modern wrap up, kind of set the board for everything we had talked about before, obviously with these previous episodes and, and look at what's going on in Latin America now and try to, to connect, you know, what had come previously with what we think is happening there now. So I think basically four or five more episodes about Latin America to go, you know, spaced out with our, our kind of random episodes that we've been doing. But we do have an end goal in sight, and I think this is going to be leading into those, uh, to those drug wars, the cocaine wars, for, for lack of a better term, that we're going to see after Panama going into Bolivia and Colombia. Yeah, and when we do get towards the, the drug war section of the podcast, um, I know I myself... I have a few different uh, articles, YouTube videos, as well as documentaries that I would love to be able to put our listeners on that they can watch and listen to um, before. Sure, check out, check out Narcos and shit like that, you know? Yeah, in the meantime, definitely watch that. Um, but I, I'm definitely holding on to a couple gems to recommend for when we do get to that, uh, that section of our, our content. Um, was there anything else, Steve, that you wanted to add in before we wrap it up? No, I think we're just, we're getting into the meat of what we want to talk about and sorry, it took, you know, three months to get here, but I, <laughs> I think we, we laid the groundwork for a reason and it's to, to have a background of what's going on so that all this kind of stuff has a perspective and has a context. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and as my brother had said, it, it has taken us a while, but it's important to lay that foundation down because I feel like eventually everybody who's been listening up to this point, um, there's going to be certain times where we're doing episodes and before we even get the words out of what exactly we're going to say, some of you guys and gals and NBs um, are going to be saying exactly what we say before we say it, just because you're going to start um, seeing and thinking um, of the world in a context of what we're trying to get you to, which is to, uh, to see things not necessarily from a full leftist movement, but to see things from a humanistic movement and to remember that it's important to to empathize with our fellow humans who are going through the day-to-day struggle, especially for all of those who are laborers out there. Shout out to those who uh, had to work on Labor Day because that's just the biggest oxymoron I've ever seen. I just wanted to yeah. put that out there. No, and, and not only is it important because of the themes that we've been talking about, but even just simple stuff like when I mentioned the military junta that was ruling with the Sandinistas early, like the fact that I didn't have to explain the history of a junta and, and all of its, you know, past context. We've already talked about that. So it's nice to just be able to, to be able to mention things and, and be able to focus on what we want to focus on now. Yeah, for yep. sure. And uh, I think we, uh, we look forward to the next episode. We'll be talking about the Bob Ross documentary, like we mentioned earlier. A couple other random topics. If anybody has any ideas, like we love that uh, last article that got sent in about the brain, um, brain growth structures and stuff like that that was going on. I would love more stuff like that. So let us know if you have anything you want to cover. Otherwise, we'll have some interesting stuff as usual. Yeah, I think we got the uh, the Neuralink thing um, that we can talk about as well. Okay. Um, and and we can expand upon that too because I know Bill Gates at one point he was trying to do something similar. 
Yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. You were talking about the Neuralink stuff. Yeah, send me um if you found anything on what you originally wanted to talk about. If you don't mind sending it along, and I'll I'll find some stuff too. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Well, yeah, that's pretty much it. I thought. Yeah, it's a good subject. Uh, good covering. Excuse me, of the subject of Nicaragua. Um, again, look into it more. Um, whether it's that early history that we kind of hit fast forward on, or even just more in depth with the Iran uh, Contra stuff, there's a lot there. Yeah, I think a great summarization of this series is two gringos hidden history bingos. Like if I could ever put a label on it, I think that would be it. Yeah, um, and it's it's well said too because as two gringos, we'll never give full justice to to what's going on with the Latin American experience, but we're just doing our best to to let people know maybe about a blind spot. Yeah, because I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it we just love history. So, um. But yes, thank you everybody who's listening, everybody who supported, everybody who retweets. Um, here pretty soon, uh, we are going to be looking at possibly expanding to some sort of Patreon platform to where we can start ex- offering exclusive content to our listeners. Um, so make sure you keep an eye out on that. Something we might be dabbling with in the future. And yeah, we're meantime- gonna. We're going to look into that. No, we're definitely going to look into that. Maybe make some shifts to providing uh, video, you know, maybe even video streaming while we're recording this kind of stuff. Maybe even just some video stuff, especially maybe after we have the big move that we're all going to be taking part in later this year. But I I think we definitely want to offer some stuff to people that maybe shows them why that'll be a worthwhile investment. Yeah. A lot of big things coming, a lot of big plans and a lot of excitement. Um, On behalf of Stu and myself, thank you guys so much for continuing to come by. We will see you next episode. Don't forget, wash your hands and wipe your butt. Peace.